The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, offering support for your spiritual growth and addiction recovery. Here's Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Anything? Jeff? Welcome to Spirit of Recovery on Unity Online Radio. We're glad you're with us today. I am Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice. And I'm Reverend Dan Beckett. And together we discuss ways that spirituality and recovery intertwine and work together to support your spiritual growth in your recovery journey. If you are listening live, you're welcome to join the discussion with your comments and questions. You can call us right now at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555, and we would love to hear from you. Facebook users, you can also message us during the show or anytime during the week from our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery. Just click the Send Message button right below the banner. And just as with phone calls, your anonymity is always respected. So terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair are known in recovery circles as the hideous four horsemen. And while this imagery of four horsemen is a reference to the end times in the book of Revelation, it aptly describes this common condition when moving from active addiction into a life of recovery. And in a way, when we enter recovery, when anyone does, we're facing our own experience of the, quote, end times, the end of our active addiction. And that can be quite a traumatic experience. Today, we want to share our experiences of moving from feeling lost and bewildered to, quote, trudging the road of happy destiny, as the recovery literature says, through a radical spiritual awakening and growth. Lonnie, when you hear about the four horsemen, what what do you remember? What was that like? Did they show up in your experience? And what was that like? Well, they did, as a matter of fact. And, you know, we were talking about the end times there. And, and I I knew something was changing. I knew something was different. I would would was into August of the year that I got sober, and I couldn't see the future. And it wasn't that I had a crystal ball or anything, but I normally had a pretty good idea about what I was going to be in and doing in September, October, November, et cetera, looking forward to the holidays, you know, and getting on with my life and getting a new job and, you know, things of that nature. And I was up against this black wall. I just could not see where I was going from here. And I had this unsettled feeling that that 
something's not right. Something's something's shifting. Something's changing, you know. And and when we talk about terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, you know, each of those started out for me being an emotion. But by the time I got to the end of the run, for me, it was very much the way I had had uh, taken on being in the world, you know, living in this state of terror all the time, this intense and overwhelming fear, much of it manufactured in my own mind, but I had no alternatives. I remember um, having, and, and this was very striking because it was not something that was usual for me at all. And it was quite near the end of my drinking career, uh, having this irrational fear, this feeling of being in danger, just walking down the street, literally feeling like I need to look back over my shoulder, um, you know, every every few moments. That was really disturbing because I, I could feel it and I was in it and I could sort of see that it was happening. And I thought, this is not good. This, you know, I feel like I'm losing my mind. And, uh, but it was overwhelming. It, it wasn't, it did not feel like something that I decided to do. It felt like this is happening. And all I could do was respond to it and try and tell myself, okay, you know, I'm, I'm walking down a street uh, during the day in, arguably one of the safest towns that there is small town in North Carolina feeling like I have to look over my shoulder. That's insane. And that sort of was my, my first um, encounter with maybe that's one of the four horsemen, my first encounter with these uh, experiences that are represented by that image. And um, I honestly don't remember how close or far that was from that point until um, my first day of sobriety, but it wasn't long. I think it must have been, uh, you know, within a week or so. I think I could be wrong. My brain was not working very well at that time. And you mentioned that it was irrational, but you know, I, when that happened for me, it didn't. It did. I didn't really think about it being irrational. You mentioned reacting out of it, not being able to change it, and I was in that same type of paranoia. Where I was, I know now, looking back, where I was making up stories about what was going to happen, you know, the misuse of the power of the imagination. And um, there was a point in time where I would be at work and I would be, I would think, functional. And I would hear somebody come in one door. There was only two doors on the, on the into the office where I, where I was. And uh, somebody would come in one door and I would be triggered by their, their voice and their footsteps and I would leave out the other door you know, because of this uh, irrational fear. It was just, I had to get out. And I had experiences like that and panic attacks, and I didn't know what was happening or why. Yeah, I had um, what I came to understand as anxiety attacks. Uh, I would have called them panic attacks, but I, I didn't literally like lose control of my breathing. And someone told me that's an anxiety attack. Hey man, I don't know what it's called, but it was nasty and super unpleasant. It was overwhelming. Um, that that was that was definitely in the last days um, of my drinking. That's not something that I um, you know that I experienced for weeks and months. Though I understand that that can happen. Uh, I feel fortunate that things got really bad really fast for me in in the last thirty days or so. Uh, of my drinking career. And that's when, that's when these, my, 
my horseman experiences, if you will. That's when my horseman experiences really came up. But yeah, I remember I, I, the smallest conflict or question. Like it happens all day, every day. I get, I get a, in the mail. I get a thing. It's like, oh, I have to send thirty dollars to this hospital because it's a copay. You know, something just mundane like that. That would just throw off the edge. Couldn't handle it. Complete um, anxiety-ridden. Can't function. Can't think about it. Uh, that was really, really. I did not like that horseman. That was really, really bad. For me, that one falls under bewilderment. You know, when I, when I structure my life around regular routines and being the control freak that I was at that point in my time. That's how I, I got through life was if I could put it on a schedule, if I could put it on a list, if I could check all the boxes and I could kind of keep everything lined up, then I'm okay. And when that didn't happen anymore, it wasn't because I was, was drunk or incapacitated. It happened because my mind quit functioning. Um, you know, I, I lost these coping skills of of being able to do the things like you were just talking about. I couldn't make a decision, kind of like we were talking about before the show. I couldn't figure out what the next step was. Um, it was almost, you know, I could watch myself in an adult body behaving like a two-year-old even and not being able to make a choice about anything. And, and then being confused about what is going on. You know, I've been a functional adult and I can't figure this out. What is the problem? I found myself just generally worried about life, life with a capital L uh, in general. You know, it was just sort of an overriding sense of anxiety. So one little example that I gave is, you know, you get a you get a minor bill in the mail that's just nothing nowadays, you know, completely threw me for a loop. Anything related to money or finance, especially about a fear of not having enough, forget it. I, I could not function with that thought in my head you know i i would literally sit on the floor um in my in my house and be unable to do anything um that is not how my life had been up to that point i have never uh been in a place like that i have not had those experiences that i remember um at all like like you said i was a functioning adult you know i was in my 40s um, I had a family and a house and a career and a business and kids and, you know, all, all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the smallest little upset would push me over the edge. It, it was, you know, all, all I can say is it was deeply disconcerting and yes, bewildering. What is going on? How can this, how is this even possible? You know, what is happening? Well, especially when I, I don't know about you, but I, would quit for periods of time, a week here, two weeks there, that type of thing. And it didn't get any better. And I could, so it couldn't have been the drinking, right? You know? <laughs> so I, you know, it was, it was just baffling all the way around. And, you know, and I, and that led to this frustration that I had because now I couldn't tell the true from the false. I couldn't tell when I was making up stories and when I wasn't, I couldn't tell if something was really as bad as I think it is, or if I'm only thinking it's that bad, you know, and, and being angry and irritated that I cannot make life work. All of the tools that I've used before, and it talks in the program about how we try to address our, we, we think if we manage well, is the phrase it uses, that all will be well. And I would, and that's what I thought. If I manage well, if I get all my ducks lined up, I'm going to be fine. But I, I, that didn't happen. I'd line up the ducks and guess what? They're all fine, but I'm not. Yeah. It, it, 
Right, because, well, I'll just do everything I always used to do and everything was fine and everything will be fine again, except it's not. Like you said, one small problem with that plan. It didn't work at all for me. And and so I had a um, just sort of an overriding fear, a general fear and anxiety that, that uh, something powerful had a hold of me. I, I kind of can get it now that if I had continued down this way, um, I, I basically was losing my mind. You know, if I had continued to drink and continued to be in this state, um, I, I think I would have, you know, it would have gotten worse. And I believe that I would have really kind of lost my connection with the world, so to speak, because I was carrying this, um, you know, both these overriding and crushing anxieties anxiety attacks uh, like we talked about but also just this this sinking feeling this this sick feeling of fear like something very very bad is going on here this is it feels like the end of the line and I, and it wasn't in a positive way like oh it's great i'm going to get an addiction recovery no i didn't know any of that i just knew you know it, it felt like if my if my life was a you know a train on a train track, it was about to go off a cliff. Was the way I felt uh, about it. Again, you know, completely irrational, but very very powerful uh, feeling, powerful experiences. You know, we talk about enculturation from time to time. The things we learn as a kid, you know, from our families and the culture around us and everything. And I recognize now that I had one thing that that was related to this and that I grew up with this saying in my head. A family member would say it all the time. Do something even if it's wrong. <laughs> and so when I got to this pr place of frustration, I would do something even if it's wrong just to change something. You know, and this is part of the geographic cure for me. It was change my job, change my spouse, change my house, change my car, you know, change something in the hopes that it would change. And of course, then that led to the last of the horsemen, which is despair. Nothing changed. Nothing got different. I only got worse, you know. And so at that point, I lose all hope. I, I, I can't see a path. I don't even have a goal because becoming sober was not on my list as a goal at that point in time. You know, I wanted to be happy. That was my goal. And, and, and so here I was in this depressed, uh, terrified, bewildered, and frustrated mess. That's a good description. <laughs> I'm glad we can move on because it, uh, uh, just talking about this is upsetting um, to me. It, it was, I, I, and I don't think about it on a daily basis and I don't talk about it on a daily basis, but it is deeply disturbing and upsetting. So now that we know about this challenge, these four horsemen feeling lost and bewildered at the end of active addiction, what is the solution? Well, in unity, we affirm that we are spiritual beings having a human experience and not vice versa. We recognize the reality of the realm of spirit and affirm that any situation we wish to change in the physical world must first be changed in the spiritual world. And this is one way we choose to recognize and live from a consciousness of the presence of God within. When we do this, we embark on a lifelong journey of spiritual awakening and growth. And that's what we want to focus on today. But what exactly is this thing we call spiritual growth? We hear a lot about it. How do we know when we see it or experience it? And is it something that we purposely do or does it just happen? Dan, what's really going on here? 
That's a big question in a very few words. What's going on here? I, I'm not sure that I know. I mean, in a way, I've dedicated uh, my life to living this way, to teaching these principles, to um, you know, sharing this path. But it's it's almost as if the further down the path I go, the the more I realize, the less I know. Um, I what one thing I can say about it is it's a deep and lasting change in perspective. It's about, to me, it's about awareness and perception, um, you know, especially coming up in, in unity that's central for us. We call it consciousness, right? God consciousness. Uh, an another way of uh, looking at that is the, you know, my, my concepts of the world. What is the content of my mind, you know, is my consciousness? What is going on? It, all, though, all in the context of the concept of a higher power. So some kind of God concept, whether we use that word or not, um, I'll often use God. I also use spirit a lot, uh, higher power, absolutely. Um, so when we're talking about spiritual growth, it's not just any change in perspective or, or perception or awareness. It's, it's a shift uh, in the context of the concept of the reality of a higher power, whatever that might be. And, you know, recognizing that that's different for different people. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I couldn't get from here to there or there to here <laughs> when I first came in. You know, I, I had other people's concept of this higher power, this God concept. I didn't have one of my own. And so I had to start with, well, where am I right now? I was sober, but I wasn't happy, you know, and so the one thing that had seemed to help me uh, was no longer available. That was alcohol. And I had to, to move on. And so I spent actually about three years in this place where I was sober and trying to grow spiritually, but not able to get past the intellectual barriers that I had, intellectual and emotional both. And, you know, there's a there's there's a, a whole paragraph in the book that talks about they're called the bedevilments that talks about this status of being without substances in your body and yet no, no spiritual growth. And that for me is where I was. It says we were having trouble with personal relationships, couldn't control our emotional natures. We were a prey to misery and depression, couldn't make a living, had a feeling of uselessness, were full of fear, unhappy. We couldn't seem to be a real help to other people. That was me. You know, and and though I wanted spiritual growth because that was going to get me out of that, I wasn't getting there. You know, so <laughs> yeah, I, I knew what it wasn't, but I still didn't know what it was. Yeah, that is not a simple transition to make, and it's it's one again of for me it was one of experience. You know, I couldn't I couldn't just read a book and oh now I get it now I'm experiencing the results of spiritual growth. It wasn't like that. Uh, at all. I had, to, I had to keep showing up. So, okay, here's another thing when we ask, well, what is the spiritual growth? Well, whatever it is, it happens over time, right? It, it doesn't tend to happen very suddenly. Th there are stories of those of us who have had kind of a profound and sudden white light experience that changed everything, but it, it was the beginning of the change of everything. You know, even, even something like that, which is not the usual path. The usual path is more of an evolutionary path. It's, it happens slowly over time. But even if we have sort of a radical white light experience, we're not done, right? That's just sort of the beginning of, of, a, of a long road of um, experience and some some growth and understanding and, and a definite shift 
in our perspective. There, there's a phrase, a saying that I like. You know, when I when I think about that, what is what is spiritual growth like? What does it look like? And it goes like this: Before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. It doesn't look that different from the outside to an outsider who doesn't know us. Now, to someone who does know us and you know could see the change that shows up in the light in our eyes, you know, you literally see the light come on in people at some point or hopefully early on in their recovery journey. And it's a wonderful thing, a wonderful experience to be a part of. Um, but, you know, from across the parking lot, you can't see that. If you don't know someone well, you you might not detect the shift in them, but it's, it's profound and life-changing and it's internal, right? We started off saying that we're spiritual beings having a human experience. And so this shift begins on the inside where you can't see it so um so readily and then hopefully you know it projects outward we talk about living from the inside out right if i i can if i can get it right in my consciousness in my god awareness then the world around me seemingly changes of course it's my perception that's changing um but that's what it looks like the whole world changes uh, around me when when i get in a when I, internally when i get in alignment uh with the spirit and so the recovery literature also alludes to that. And I, it was really disturbing to me the way that it, it described that it. it said huge emotional displacements and rearrangements of ideas, emotions, and attitudes and motives. I did not want anything to do with huge emotional displacements <laughs> and rearrangements. No. And that's called resistance. And so part of my early journey was was um, this resistance that I had. Oh, I'm having an emotion. Oh, I don't want to do that you know, and, and doing other things to stay out of that. Um, once I came to understand that that was part of the deal, and in unity, of co course, we call that chemicalization. We have an old idea crash into a new idea, and we have a huge reaction to that, both in our, in our psyche and in our consciousness and, our, and sometimes physically as well. Um, and so, you know, I, I finally came to understand that that was a part of the deal that these things were going to change. And so I would go, okay, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Something's moving in me. I don't know what it is. I don't like it very much, but okay. <laughs> you know, I'd go with it. And so then I would engage with the things I had been told to do. Oh, well, let's go see the counselor. Well, let's do some journaling. Well, let's call your sponsor. You know, those kind of things that I had been resistant to up to that point. Absolutely. And, and that's reminding me that willingness, you know, willingness to see differently and to show up differently in the world, even when I had no idea what exactly that meant or let alone how to do it, um, just knowing that that was part of it, you know, choosing to be on a recovery path is to me is an expression of the willingness to live life differently, to see things differently, um, to, to show up, um, even, even if I don't know what's happening or what's going to happen. And that was my experience early on. What kept me on the path was not because I knew what the heck was happening. It was because the people that I was around who were also on the path, they definitely looked like they knew something I didn't know. And they were living a way that looked really, really good to me. And I would like to live that way too. And so it was just kind of a trust in the idea that, you know, if I stick around 
as they did. And if I do the kinds of things that I'm hearing them talk about, um, I'll probably I'm gonna I'm gonna count on that I will probably then end up, you know, living the way that I perceive them to be living. And that was absolutely true. That was true. And again, that's the power of community. You know, that's the power of the group. That's why the, you know, the the person who's there on their first day in sobriety, sitting next to someone who's a week in, right down from someone who's three months, right down from someone who's 40 years, all in the same room, all, you know, there to learn from one another and to walk with one another. The, just the power of that community was had more impact on me than I even realized at the time. But I think that that's what kept me going. And that's what, so what, what is the spiritual growth? Well, it's showing up out of curiosity and saying, okay, I will pick up the phone and call the sponsor. I will make a gratitude list. I'll do the things that I need to do to foster this deep and it seemed very, very slow, this deep and slow and uncomfortable shift that I knew was happening within me, even though I, that's all I could say. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how this works. You know, it's just show up and trust, I think. So a phrase that I heard early on that helped me in that stage was growth is at the edge of your comfort zone. And so since I had said that I wanted to grow, I had to become willing to be uncomfortable, to sit with my discomfort. I'm not talking about walking into uncomfortable situations on purpose. You know, like like going into some place where they're serving alcohol when I'm, you know, not feeling fit spiritually. But I'm talking about that, uh, okay, I got invited someplace with a group of people in recovery. Perhaps I should say yes, you know, okay. instead of isolating. I got I got invited to to hang out with some folks or to, to uh, make some phone calls or to be part of a service project. Perhaps I should say yes to that, you know, and in some ways it's more of like saying yes to life instead of retreating in fear, which is where I had been. You know, I heard a song recently that talked about shackled by my fears and doubts, you know, in a prison of my own making, shackled by my fears and doubts. And that's absolutely where I lived up to that point in time. That's a great image and a great sort of word painting of, of exactly what that's like. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a Bible nerd, uh, and I do I do love the Scripture, and I'm remembering something from Romans that says, and and this is in the King James. Sometimes only the King James will do, even though that's not my go-to translation. Uh, and it says, "Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind," and that's a unity statement. If I ever heard one, mm -hmm. um, we might add, you know, looking at it through a recovery lens. Uh, you know, renewing of your mind, body, and spirit, but it all, it's a thinking problem, right? I, I was told I wasn't a, a great thinker with a drinking problem. I was a great drinker with a thinking problem. And so, uh, the you know, my consciousness is where the core of the issue lives. And so that's what we need to address. Okay, well, hold that thought because it's time for a short break. And when we come back, we'd love to hear from you as we continue this conversation. The phone number is 816-251-3555. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. 
Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice and Reverend Dan Beckett. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're glad you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, my name is Reverend Lonnie Vanderslice, and I'm here with Reverend Dan Beckett. We'll resume our discussion in a moment, but first we want to let you know that the phone lines are open. So if you have a question or a comment to share, please give us a call at 816-251-3555. Again, that number is 816-251-3555. So prior to the break, we were discussing our experiences of what the recovery literature calls the hideous, the four horsemen. Uh, terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair, uh, hopefully showing up near the end of our active addiction and signaling a shift to a life of recovery. And we're also talking about spiritual growth, the kind of um, what the, the thing that underpins the shift, a phrase that describes that shift that happens when we get into recovery. So Lonnie, now that we uh, well aware and remembering this lo- feeling of lost, lost and bewilderment with these four horsemen and knowing that the solution is somehow this thing we call spiritual growth. What exactly does it look like to use or to practice spiritual growth as a path to what we call happy destiny, trudging the road? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, for me, it was a wandering path. You know, I'd try this and then I'd try that and it, I may or may not feel better for a while. But, you know, I I think the very, very first thing for me was that I had to learn to ask for help. You know, there were definite, definite activities that I had to undertake in order to put myself in a position to receive the opportunity for spiritual growth. And, you know, we've talked uh, previously about suiting up and showing up. That's one of them. Another one is for me to ask for help. You know, I was pretty much an individualist. I thought I could figure it out. I was going to do it all by myself. And so it took a while for that uh, wall to come down to where I could say, could you help me with this? You know, I don't understand that. You said something in a meeting. I didn't get that. Could you explain it to me? Even something as simple as that. You know, what you're sharing is reminding me that in a sense, what I have have been able to do, and I believe that the way this works is I, I can't just go out and get spiritual growth, right? But I can do the things that create the conditions under which it can, uh, you know, arise in my consciousness, say. Um, you know, just like if I wanted to experience flowers, I might, you know, find a plot of land, take all the rocks and the weeds out, plant the seeds, water them according to the schedule that's conducive to making flowers. And, you know, if I do, if I show up and do those things consistently, then uh, I've created the conditions and flowers will appear. It's almost like spiritual growth is a byproduct of some things that, you know, that we do that, again, from the outside, they don't they don't look like they're even connected or add up to much, but um, we know from experience that they lead to uh, spiritual growth. You know, when we talk about this, I'm always reminded how there are certain basic principles that we keep circling back to, and one of them is the the acronym HOW, right? Um, standing for honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. Those are kind of the the core ingredients. So, like, if I were cooking, what would that be? The uh, the uh, onions, garlic, and salt of, 
of rec of recovery, the things that you start with that are part of everything that sort of provide a basis for it. Um, uh, you know, uh, being honest enough to share what's really going on with me and to assess where I'm at and not pretend that it's otherwise open-minded just to the possibility that, hey, there's another way that I don't know about and, and maybe I can uh, discern and detect and follow that way. And then the willingness to actually do it. You know, we have a chapter in the uh, recovery literature, at least for, um, for Alcoholics Anonymous, called How It Works, right? And this was written in, what, 1937? That's still how it works, right? That's how it worked in 1937, and that's how it worked today. It's back to basics, back to basics. And being honest, open-minded, and willing is always comes to mind to me first as, you know, the go-to. If I forget everything else, um, that. I would agree with that. You know, uh, two pieces of that. Those are three very important spiritual principles. And the, the, the turn that I had to make from being self-directed was being guided by spiritual principles. You know, I couldn't make it to the higher power level yet to go, okay, higher power, tell me what to do next. But I could ask myself, is this honest, what I'm considering? You know, am I being open-minded or am I being resistant? You know, and am I willing? And sometimes any one of those questions could stall me out, you know, because for a long time, that spiritual principle of honesty, I didn't realize was, did not have to do with only cash register honesty. It had to do with my motives, you know, uh, manipulation and, and uh, you know, attempting to get what I wanted from somebody else through devious means, you know, and, and deception and things of that nature. It had to do with a lot of things that I had never given a second thought to. You know, somebody asked me, how are you today? And I go, fine, through gritted teeth, because I'm not fine. <laughs> That's not emotional honesty, you know. And so I had a lot of resistance at each step of the way, but practicing those things that started the change for me because I made a decision. I was willing to try to practice spiritual principles, those three in particular. And that word practice, you know, it's called a spiritual practice, like a meditation practice or a prayer practice. Um, and the, the saying that has stuck with me that, that points at an, an essential piece of all this is, is that saying that goes just suit up and show up. You know, get dressed and come to the meeting or whatever it might be. It might literally be suit up, meaning, you know, get out of the, my sweatpants and put on some jeans and show up at my recovery group meeting. But it also applies in many other ways um, that, that just underscores. And, and I guess this is that willingness part. If it's true that I'm willing to engage the principles and to engage the idea that there's there maybe there's a new way of doing this that I don't know about. Um, one one way that that will show up is that I am willing to um, suit up and show up. You know, I'm willing to um, do the things that I understand I need to do, even if I don't really get why, even if I don't know well why I don't feel like going to a meeting and I don't even know what they're going to talk about. And, and I've probably heard it before anyway, you know, all those excuses uh, just get set aside when my willingness kicks in and I'm willing just to put one foot in front of the other. It's almost like um, if I were to say, yeah, I, I really, I really want to run a marathon, but this one foot in front of the other thing is for the birds. I'm not doing that. Well, guess what? <laughs> My marathon idea is out the window if I'm not willing to do the simple little things, one foot in front of the other, left foot, right foot, 
you know, suit up and show up. You know, and that is critical for any spiritual path. We talk about spiritual growth, and to get there, there's a path. Um, and many people take different paths. You know, 12 steps is only one path. You know, unity is another path or can be a parallel or an extension of a 12-step yeah. path, as can be Buddhism and any number of others. And, you know, that willingness piece, um, I had so much resistance. I, I have a shortcut. I know where somebody is, and I can hear it in myself when I hear the word, yeah, but, because <laughs> that indicates unwillingness. Yeah, but I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but I have reservations. Yeah, but I'm kind of resistant to that for some unknown reason. And then so I have to back up and work on that. But um, it is essential. And in any of those paths, if I want to learn more about the unity path, I have to become willing to go to the classes, to, to sit in another lecture, to attend a church, to uh, engage in a study group, you know, any number of things to, to, to become open to a new idea about how this spiritual world works. You know, given that spiritual growth is, in a sense, a, a growth of consciousness, it's a shift of consciousness, it's, you know, renewing our minds, as the, as the verse from Romans said. One thing I had to do in order, again, it's, this is about creating the conditions for those things to happen, uh, to create the conditions is to learn to suspend judgment you know, not all the time about everything, but to to recognize and develop the skill uh, that says, um, I, I'm going to be willing to hear what someone has to say and not have to decide what I think about it. Is that true or not? Do they know what they're talking about or not? Uh, would that work for me or not? Um, instead of trying to assess and place and you know, find which pigeonhole this concept fits in. What if I just listened to it and then just sort of let it sit there without feeling like I need to box it up and put it on the shelf in a certain place in order to feel okay? You know, that's a big part of, of what I have always done. And I think what many of us do is, you know, if I can't make sense of something, then I'm uncomfortable. And so I will make sense of it. You know, even if my sense makes no sense at all, it makes sense to me. And so that fulfills the requirement. Um, and so it's very uncomfortable to suspend judgment because it, it means that I'm, I'm going to try and not make sense of it and just let that be okay. Uh, that was the skill I had to develop. And, and, you know, like everything, it's not a black and white issue. It's, it's not as if I rid myself of the power of discernment and never use it again. It's just that I temper it somewhat. I do an experiment. I try out what would it be like if I just kind of held back on that a little bit now and find, and by doing that, you know, it opens the door to finding a new balance because that ultimately is what we're after with all this stuff is a, is a new balance um, in in my use of uh, what I'm calling judgment or discernment, and just let you know, let ideas be, let other people just be who they are, and see what happens next. You know, you mentioned the chapter called "How It Works." The one that follows it's called "Into Action." You know, I I could assimilate a lot of these ideas, as Charles Fillmore would say, with intellectual assent. Oh yeah, sounds like a great idea. Yeah, sure, we can do that. But if I don't put my feet on the floor. And, and start moving, if I don't actually take action of some type to put it into practice, which goes back to the practice comment, then, you know, I, I have, I gain nothing 
I might gain a whole lot of ideas, new ideas, but they don't do anything for my spiritual growth because I'm not open. I'm not willing uh, to allow that. You know, and so the first thing that I had to change was this behavior. You know, I, I feel like my recovery goes in layers. The, the top layer, the most superficial layer is my behavior. How am I behaving? Well, I can learn a new set of rules on how to behave properly, you know, to show up and, and, and say the right things. And, you know, you've heard people in that they know all the unity speak or they know all the meetings speak, but they haven't got it yet, you know, because guess what? Underneath the behavior, um, our thinking drives our emotions and emotions are still out of control, you know, and underneath that for me was my motives because I was not, I was not doing the next right thing I was doing the next thing that I thought would do get for me what I wanted you know and so those are the kind of things that I had to look at was was uh, what are my motives underneath and be willing then to to set that aside and take action based on something besides my motive yes that you've said a lot I can see that and I think that's a very helpful way to look at it to realize there are layers there are layers to ourselves, and, and some of them are more apparent, and the deeper ones might be harder to see. Um, I know that I had to, and this was pretty easy for me, especially at first because I'm such an introvert, but I had to stop talking and start listening. Now, it was easy for me to not talk because um, that was just sort of my natural way of being in the world and to just sort of observe what was going on, but I had to learn to listen more deeply, not just listen to say, okay, I understand what they're saying, but listen, you know, below that, listen for, you know, what, what is the, where's the light in what they're saying, or, you know, where's the, where's the presence of spirit in what they're sharing? What are the emotions underneath what they're sharing? Not, not just, you know, the, an idea and I get it. Uh, okay, next, but to really and, and and I think what I'm getting at is the, the beginning of um, really of compassion because I'm looking not just to hear what they said, but to make a connection of some kind. You know, it doesn't have to be a deep and lasting, uh, huge, profound thing, but at least let me hear what someone is saying and really just try to get it on all levels and then, you know, let it go and move on. So I, I had to learn to uh, listen more deeply. And again, it's related to what I shared a few minutes ago, not, not listen to figure out how to see it correctly, not listen to figure out what box to put the idea in, but just listen for the sake of being present to what they were saying and then stop right there and let that be enough. Um, that was a very strange concept to me and, and a weird thing, a weird yet very powerful practice. It is a very powerful practice, and I can recall, I don't know when I exactly learned how to do that, but I do recall having very visceral experiences with that, not uh, the compassion piece in terms of that, but in the truth. When I, when I started listening, it was almost like somebody hit me in the chest when I would hear the truth of what they were saying, the, yes. the nugget of truth. It was like, thump, you know, there it is. And then I began to understand that the messenger, the person that was saying it, was not the significant piece of what was going on here. My ability to tune into the message that we was being given is what was going to help me here. And that helped me become more open to the people that were carrying the message when we talk about that, you know, carrying the message. And so another thing that I had to do was service work. 
you know, and I'm not talking about pouring coffee now. I'm talking about being willing when somebody with two days stops me after a meeting and says, can I talk to you for a few minutes? You know, well, I've got plans. I'm busy. I got places to go. I'm supposed to be someplace else at a certain time. And I have to stop and say, yes, I can, I can listen. Let's, you know, you want to stay here. You want to go get a cup of coffee because that is not just passing it on, giving it back, but that is where I get reflected back to me, what's going on inside of me. You know, that's where I get that nugget of truth that they have to share that. Um, and I hope that they're helped in, in response. What I think what you're describing is one way that we do what I've heard called getting out of myself, you know, get, get out of my own head. And I, I had a sponsor that would ask these really astute questions. And one uh, question he would ask if I was feeling just kind of down or disconnected or you know, maybe anxious or just sort of out of sorts, he would say, what have you done for other people lately? Lately, like today, lately, not last week. What have you done for other people lately? That was a short version of what have you done for others with no expectation of return? Only for the joy of showing up and doing a, a right and helpful thing. What have you done for others? And your example of if someone says, you know, do you have a few minutes? And you're feeling like, eh, not really. But you say, yes, I do. That, okay, so that is something that I've done uh, for somebody else. And, 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 and when I turn my attention to that, I can pretty quickly come up with a long list of things that I can do for other people. You know, we, we talk about the secret service where you, you do things and that are, that are positive and kind and, and then don't tell anyone or no one knows that you did it and you don't tell anyone. There are lots of ways that we can do for others. And every single time that I've done that, it's absolutely been really, it's been super healing on my, you know, my own, um, you know, getting stuck in my own head. Uh, I remember uh, the example of, and I've shared before that I used to be part of the group that would take a meeting into the detox at the local hospital. And it was almost like without fail, I was like, oh man, four o'clock on Friday. Why did I say I would do this? I don't feel like going, but I would go because I said that I would. And I walked out of there as, you know, just as light as air. And it's not just because I'm thinking, man, I'm glad I'm not one of them. You know, it's just the connection. And, and part of taking the meeting is we told our story briefly. <clears throat> and then you'd always go with someone and they told their story. So I learned the things about people I didn't know who were from my home. Oh, man, just it was the connection that made the whole world feel lighter. You know, what What have I done for other people lately is a great question that points me in an important direction with this thing that we call spiritual growth. Again, we're talking about creating the conditions. You know, and, and I think that some things change. You know, I mean, one of the questions I had was, how do I know if I get it? How do I know if I've got it? How do I know if I'm growing? You know, and, and the thing that I noticed was the first time I realized that when they read the promises, that some of them were true for me. You know, the promises are uh, commonly read at the end of, of many meetings, in particular the open meetings. But, uh, you know, and it, and, it, and it says we lose selfish in, we lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. You know, and self-seeking slips away. I'm going, well, slips is an appropriate word. You know, yes. I didn't, I don't know when that went away. 
will comprehend the word serenity and will know peace. That one took a long time, but I was then told I have moments of peace. I don't get days of peace on, in a row. I get moments of peace. That's more than I ever had before. You know, our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. That's the consciousness that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, and that occurs around the third step where we start having a new lens that we're viewing the world through. You know, and it goes on. And fear of people and economic insecurity, not, not fear of not, you know, of the insecurity, fear of them leaves. You know, and, and, it, and it goes on and on. You can, you can read them in any of the recovery literature uh, if you have an interest in the rest of them. But when I noticed that these were the results of the spiritual growth, these were things that were happening. These were indicators that I'm getting it. I'm doing something right. I'm on the path. I used to sit and count them, right? Because it's not presented as a list, right? It's just a paragraph. But I think there are 12. Is that right? Yeah. The, uh -huh. There are 12 promises. And I would sit there and count number one. Number two, because I, just like you, I loved, I love that they're there. I love that it gave, they would give me a sense of hope and also a sense of connection when I realized, wow, I think this one is really becoming true for me. And, and just to know it was just, it's hard to describe. It's almost like a, a moment of, um, not security. I think hope is the the best word for it. There's hope. This works. These things are on the way. They will always happen if we work for them, right? And 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 I do the work, and then I would see them happening. I'm thinking about my sponsor again, who'd say, "What have you done for other people lately?" He would also say, "Why don't you make a gratitude list?" And he didn't. He, he meant like. When we hang up the phone, you pick up a piece of paper and make a gratitude list and start with 30 things and then call me back. So I was like, 30 things? Man, I can't even think of two because I'm so annoyed with the world. All right, so I got to 30, pretty call him back. He said, okay, now I'll extend the list to 100, which seems impossible, and then hang up and do it. And man, if that didn't shift my attitude every single time. Man, what a powerful practice. And, and again, I didn't want to do it all. Why do I have to do Why did I say I would take the meeting into the detail? Oh, and then walk out of there later on air. Same thing with making a gratitude list. I don't want to make it all oh, stupid. I did this before. I don't like making gratitude. And then I make it and the whole world changes. Absolutely. And then somebody wants what you have and you get asked to be a sponsor. And the whole process starts over again, <laughs> at least it did for me, because now I have to be able to explain it, parts of it, to somebody else. And I have to be able to demonstrate it, and I have to be able to um, assist, you know, and answer questions and things. And, and so my motives began to change, because I wanted to be truly helpful to this person. It wasn't an ego trip of, oh, man, I got somebody to sponsor. You know, it was more of a like, wow, boy, I wish it, I could do, give to them what was given to me you know, with, with a, a companion on the journey. And, you know, I, I liken this to when we, when we go into ministry, we're, we talk about being called. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is somewhat similar that you were called into service. Our motive changes. We're told to get into service in the beginning. We have to change our behavior, but something clicks along the way, something switches, something changes. And now we are called, we are called to this higher purpose of helping others on this journey. You know, the, I, I love that, and I'm glad you said that. And what I have said to people many times is we have been called to the big league. 
you know, if, if you go to a traditional church, you can think of it as God or Jesus doing the calling. It doesn't matter. The Spirit has called us to the big time, and we can answer the call and have a great life or ignore the call and roll the dice. I might die. Uh, I will get another chance to answer it, and I hope that I do. But yes, that's huge. But let us now move into action, right? Because unity's fifth principle states, it's not enough to know these truths. We must live them. That means we must each take action in order to grow and recover. We've been talking about that a lot today. So here's something you can do to support your growing experience of the presence of the Spirit in your life. Think of a situation or a circumstance where you feel lost and bewildered. Is there something in your relationships at work or at home that maybe feels like that? Or maybe there's something about your own thoughts or behaviors that would you, like, you would like some healing around. Perhaps sometimes you feel disconnected or invisible in the world. What's important is to pick one thing, something simple, to focus on right here in this exercise today. And you can take what we do here today into your life this week and return to it anytime you choose in order to find a moment of peace. So let's use the example of sometimes feeling disconnected in the world. Use a statement of power, or what we refer to in unity as a denial, to deny any power to this sense of disconnection. You could say something like, my feelings are not facts. They do not control my life. Repeat it a few times in your head or aloud and say it with conviction. My feelings are not facts. They do not control my life. And follow that up immediately with a bold, positive affirmation of a new experience. So you could say, I'm open and receptive to the healing power of God. I am a new creation in spirit. Then take a few moments just to be quiet, relax, and take it easy. There's no need to struggle. Give thanks, thanks for your new experience in the world and move on with your day. My feelings are not facts. They do not control my life. I'm open and receptive to the healing power of God. I'm a new creation in spirit. So we've come to the end of our time together here today, and we hope you found something that can help you on your recovery path. We thank you, uh, Reverend Dan Beckett, for our discussion, and thanks to all of you that are listening to the podcast via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. We bless you wherever you are on your recovery journey. Listeners, if you would like, you can connect with us on our Facebook page, Spirit of Recovery, to give us your thoughts and feedback. We invite you to join us again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, and until then, have a wonder-filled week. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.